0: This morning, we read from Isaiah 38, 1-8. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order, because you are going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, O Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says, I have heard your prayer And seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city. This is the Lord's sign to you. That the Lord will do what he has promised. I will make the shadow cast by the sun. Go back the ten steps it has gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. So the sunlight went back the ten steps. It had gone down.
1: Good morning. So I came to Christ when I was 17, went off to college, and summers I would come back to my hometown and work, and I would go to my small church there, and the church had a really excellent pastor. He was a great preacher of the word. I loved to hear his exposition of the scriptures. He was faithful to the text. He was true to the word. He made me want to preach like him. He and I became friends, and he encouraged me later to go to seminary. He's part of the reason I'm doing what I'm doing today. I really looked up to him. Well, shortly after my time with him, he went on to a medium-sized church in Oregon, and then a year later went to a mega church in California. I went and visited him there at the mega church, and I said, how's it going? He said, this is terrific. I love being here. I get to just preach the word and I don't have to do anything else. Which kind of struck me as interesting because how do you really stay in touch with the people if you're not doing other ministry and involved in their lives? But he seemed happy, so it seemed okay. <laughs> but then a couple of years later when I was in seminary, I heard that He'd had an ongoing moral failure, lost his position there, was fired, destroyed his marriage. His life was a mess. He was the first of several men and women that I, over the years, have looked up to in my life whose huge flaws became evident over time. For me, it was somewhat devastating because I had put these people on a pedestal. And looked up to them and tied my faith in some way to how they were doing. And so when they failed morally, it was really tough for me. Tim Keller says this. Leadership corruption is not a new phenomenon. <laughs> Men and women were commissioned at the very beginning to rule the world and cultivate its riches, its stewards. Seeing all that they have as belonging to God. Genesis 1. But under sin people rule out of self-interest exploiting others to increase their own assets and power. How many of us, and I won't ask you to raise your hand though I would guess it's by far the most of us have had leaders in or out of the church who have somehow failed in some major way and it has rocked our world. I've talked to a number of people whose pastors or other Christian leaders have fallen into sin, and so they've hardened their own hearts in response. They've said or felt things like, well, they're just a bunch of hypocrites anyway. I knew it all along. And they've ended up leaving that church, maybe going to another one to in the hopes that they'll find better leaders. Or they've ended up leaving the church altogether and don't go anywhere now because, again, the church is just full of hypocrites anyway, so why should I go to church at all? Or maybe they've stayed in church but have just gotten hardened and cynical. I hope none of you are being described in those verses, but I think it's way too common among us in the church, isn't it? But others, others have responded to the moral failures of their leaders, and it's been the best thing for their faith. You see, because they've been freed from their idolatry of people, of putting people on pedestals and trusting in them more than ultimately the Lord. See, I think that's how it's worked in my life and in others that I've known that, When people fall off their pedestals, it can be very good for our faith because it weans us of that temptation that we all have to put our trust in things other than God, and especially to put our trust in Christian leaders. You see, when we put too much trust in humans of any kind, especially human leaders, God sometimes has to reveal their flaws and sometimes in a dramatic way to wean us of that tendency to depend on others rather than him. He loves us too much to keep us dependent on things other than him. And so our passage today, Isaiah 38 and 39, will help us to see how God uses disappointment in leaders to deepen our dependence on him. Pray with me if you would. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bow before you this morning, admitting, confessing to you that all of us struggle with really trusting you. We we are unfaithful. We are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. And we trust things more than we trust you way too often. And Lord, as we discuss this whole topic of putting our trust in Christian leaders rather than you, I pray that you'd open our hearts to see what's in them, where we Are putting our trust in the wrong place so that we might trust you more fully. We pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So as we enter these two chapters, I want to just set the setting for you, remind you that 300 years before, before Isaiah's day, the people had demanded a king. Remember, God was leading them through Samuel, the prophet, and And they said, you know what? We don't like your sons. We don't think this is going to go well. And we want a king just like all the other nations. We want a person to trust in. And God told Samuel, well, they're not really rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. (laughs) So God gave them a king. First it was Saul. He wasn't so great. Then they had David, who was really a godly king. But as we know, he had his issues as well. And over the next several hundred years, there were a number of kings. But as you look at these kings, nearly all of them were ungodly. In chapter 7 of Isaiah, we saw how Ahaz was somebody who did not trust God. But now his son, Hezekiah, has become king. And as Josh taught us over the last couple weeks, we saw how Hezekiah is truly a godly king. He's a great king. He may be the most godly king that... Judah ever had. And he trusted God for this incredible victory over the Assyrians. And 185,000 Assyrians were struck dead overnight. And Jerusalem was saved, the people of Judah, through the faith and the trust of Hezekiah. He was a godly man. And so at the end of chapter 37... Hezekiah is raised up as a wonderful, godly man. And if it, the book of Isaiah had ended there, we might not have needed chapters 40 through 66, which we'll get to next year. Those chapters that are all about Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the one that we are to trust in rather than all the other things. You see, the whole book of Isaiah 1 through 39 is all about the ways in which the people of God were trusting in things other than Jesus, other than God himself, other than him. And like us, they were fickle. They trusted in Egypt. They trusted in Assyria. They trusted in their idols. They trusted in their leaders, but they had a hard time trusting in Yahweh. And so God was weaning them of that ungodly trust. And he does the same for you and me. Our hearts are the same. Our hearts are so stubborn that we tend to put our faith in things other than God. And so he works to wean us of those things, those idols we cling to. He disappoints us in them until we finally let them go and trust him more fully. So why does God put chapters 38 and 39 in? Because in these chapters, we see Hezekiah's flaws very clearly. I'm going to point out four major flaws we see in Hezekiah. And as we see these, it's God's way of weaning Israel off of faith in Hezekiah rather than in God. And it's also meant to wean us from trusting in human leaders rather than Jesus himself. The first flaw I want to highlight is the flaw of self-entitlement. Self-entitlement. Now remember back... Josh taught a couple weeks ago at the beginning of chapter 36, it was a national crisis. Assyria was coming and they were attacking the nation of Judah. And in that national crisis, what did Hezekiah do? Remember, he turned to God in prayer. And he prays an amazing prayer to God, submitting to him and asking God to intervene on behalf of the nation. Now in chapter 38... It's not a national crisis, it's a personal crisis in Hezekiah's life. God comes through Isaiah and says, Oh, by the way, your time is up. I'm taking you to heaven. <laughs> You're going to die. And Hezekiah responds again in prayer, but his prayer for himself is very different. Did you notice his prayer? Let me just read a couple of verses again in verse chapter 38. When Isaiah came to him, Hezekiah responded in verse 2. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Do you hear his prayer? Do you hear his attitude in that prayer? It's very interesting. Again, it's very different. It's, it's a prayer that says, God, look at all I've done for you. Look how faithful I've been, how I've walked before you, how I've done good. And you're going to take my life? I don't deserve that. He doesn't say all that, but that's the attitude we sense behind it. Lord, this isn't fair. I deserve better from you. Don't we all fall into that attitude sometimes? When life goes hard, it gets difficult and it's tough for us. Some hardship happens and we just feel like, Lord, I've been praying to you. I've been going to church. I've been serving you in Sunday school. I've been involved in this ministry. Why are you allowing this hard thing to happen to me? It's not fair. I don't deserve this. And especially as leaders, we can get that attitude. Look how important I am. <laughs> Look. Look. All I've done for you. How can I serve you, God, if you're allowing this bad thing, this hard thing to happen to me? I don't deserve it. It's an attitude of self-entitlement that we easily fall into. So I hurt my knee a few weeks back and then two and a half, less than three weeks ago, I had surgery on it. That's why I'm sitting on the stool. and, And it's painful. It's hard. But, you know, okay, I'll buck up. Lord, I can get through this. It's okay. A lot of people struggle. We can do this, God, together. Then shortly after I hurt my knee and in the midst of all the last few weeks, our furnace broke. So we needed a major repair. At the same time, our water heater, brand new water heater, quit. I decided I better turn on the sprinklers right before I had my surgery to make sure they're on. I turn them on and there are gushers everywhere. Jeannie hasn't felt well, which is really tough. I need my nurse, right? (laughs) And then worst of all, our espresso maker broke. (laughs) I found myself feeling put out. Okay, God, I can handle a little bit, but, but all of this, it's too much, especially having to deal with it without caffeine. <laughs> Come on, God. And I, and I literally just was feeling like I didn't deserve all this. I, I found myself struggling. Of course, God has me studying these chapters. <laughs> he loves to apply the scripture that I'm going to be teaching to me first. And in my feeling of, God, this isn't fair, he just began to speak to me and said, whoa, wait a minute, what what would be fair right now? Oh, yeah. Fair would be to send me to hell forever. (laughs) That's really what I deserve. And yet you've given me so much grace, so much life that I don't deserve. And I began to see how God in his love was again, just continuing the process of weaning me from my dependence on other things besides him, including thinking that somehow I'm entitled because I'm a pastor for things to go well. That's just a wrong perspective. That's self-centered. That's self-entitlement. But as leaders, we can easily fall into that because... There are certain privileges that go with leadership, right? Not just in the church, but anywhere. You, you get a certain position. You get a certain status in people's minds. There are often little perks that go with the job. CEOs, of course, have massive salaries because they're leaders. And after a while, leaders begin to believe the hype about themselves. And let me say that all of that is very dangerous to a leader's soul. So why shouldn't we trust in our leaders? Well, one reason is because no matter how much God is using them, no matter how great they might be, like Hezekiah having this great victory over Assyria, they're still just fellow sinners who are struggling to trust God and struggle with self that continues to be part of of who we are, we continue to struggle with self-entitlement. In verses 4 through 8, which David read, I'm really struck by God's response to this prayer that is not so pure, is it, of Hezekiah. This isn't fair. God says, you know what? I will bless you. I will give you grace. I will give you 15 more years of life let me bless you because I am a gracious God and I will heal you from your current disease and let me encourage you. And in that encouragement, notice he not only says I will heal you, but in verse 7 of chapter 38, he says, this shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back Ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the ten steps by which it had declined. Do you realize what an incredible miracle this was? God chose to give him a sign that he didn't need, or at least he did deserve. And and think about what it took to make the sun actually go back ten steps. I mean, from my mildly scientific mind. <laughs> That means that God reversed the rotation of the earth and caused it to go back about 40 minutes, most people think, and then allowed it to go back just to encourage Hezekiah. That's an incredible, incredible miracle of grace, isn't it? That God would do that. I I don't know why God would bless Hezekiah in such a marvelous way, but he did with amazing sign even though he had this attitude of self-entitlement. But you know, it wasn't enough for Hezekiah because as we go on in the rest of chapter 38, we see the next flaw in him, and that's the flaw of self-pity. He moved from self-entitlement to self-pity. Let me read verses 9 through 15. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he'd been sick and had recovered from his sickness... I said in the middle of my days, I must depart. I'm consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent, like a weaver. I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom from day to day, from day to night. You bring me to an end. I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. Oh, Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. Well, what shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness Of my soul. I want you to notice the bitterness of his soul there. The attitude of God, you've done this to me. You've made my life hard. It could be so much better, but you've torn me like a lion. You've left me to wander in wasteland and bitterness. And God, ultimately, you've done this. It's your fault. Notice any sense of self pity there? (laughs) I do. I hear it, because it's very familiar to me. (laughs) It reminds me of Elijah, too, in the Old Testament, when Elijah went through this incredible victory over the 450 prophets of Baal. It was amazing. But at the end of that, Jezebel threatened to kill him, and he got frustrated and depressed and full of self-pity and ran for his life and ran into the desert. And God confronted him about his attitude, and he just kept saying, Woe is me, I'm the only one left. God says, oh, by the way, there's over 7,000 who still have not bowed the knee to Baal. But Elijah struggled. I think that often happens to people who serve God, right? It happens to all of us who serve him. At some point where life gets hard or it's difficult, we get depressed, we get spiritually attacked, and we get this feeling of self-pity. Woe is me. The passage goes on and God does heal him. He asks for healing and God heals him. But you still sense this sense that it's all about him. It's all about Hezekiah still. And I'm struck how Hezekiah moved from self-entitlement. God, this isn't fair. I don't deserve this to self-pity. God, you've done this to me to feeling sorry for himself. And it's just a reminder, brothers and sisters, that every leader struggles with the self just like you do. With the sense of self-pity and self-entitlement, the flesh is not fully conquered in any of us. And your leaders struggle as well. So he or she will continue to battle self. What's God's response? Verse 21. Now Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. God still says, okay, we're still going to practically show you how we're going to heal you. I'm still going to heal you. I still am going to give you my unconditional, my undeserved love. Hezekiah. So Hezekiah's moved from self-entitlement to self-pity. And now we see his third flaw, which I call unbelief. And I just want to highlight it from verse 22 of chapter 38, where he says, Hezekiah also had said, What is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Now, I don't know about you, but that just kind of jumps out at me. Because I think, Wait a minute, Hezekiah. God has already promised he would heal. You have the promise of his word. You have even how he's going to do it through this poultice that Isaiah described. But more than that, he already gave you a sign back in verses 7 and 8. In fact, a miraculous sign of causing the sun to go back 10 steps. An incredible sign. And yet at this point, Hezekiah says, yeah, but I need more give me another sign. And I don't know about you, but I just go, wait a minute, how did Hezekiah get here? How did he get so far from trusting God to defeat all the Assyrians to when he thinks about himself, he can't even believe a sign and the word of God that he's been given so clearly? He's doubting God here. He's not believing what God says, even after all that God has given him to believe. How could this be? The only explanation I can come up with is that his heart has drifted away from believing in God's goodness to where even when he sees and hears the word and sees a sign, it doesn't impact his heart anymore because he's so concerned about himself and how he's doing that he can't even believe what's right in front of his face. This is a great warning to you and to me. I think. That when we give in to this self-entitlement, God, I deserve better. And to self-pity, woe is me. God, you're just not being good enough to me. Then we fall into unbelief, an unbelief that says, God, and I don't even believe anymore that you're good. Remember, that's the very place Satan wants to get us. That's the very attack he used against Adam and Eve in the garden, didn't he? Remember that? Where... Satan comes to Eve and says, you know, did God really say and uh, you know what? God's holding out on you because he knows if you eat from the apple and eat from the tree of good and evil, that you will become like God. And he believed it. God's holding out on me. God is not good. Therefore, she ate and she gave to her husband who was with her, who didn't do a thing to protect her. But that's the same scheme that Satan is using with Hezekiah and that he uses with every one of us is to get us to try to doubt God's goodness. Life is hard sometimes. We have difficulty. And what Satan wants us to believe is that therefore God is not good. We can trust, like Hezekiah, God for the big things sometimes, but not for ourselves. So sometimes it's true of us, and including me, God, I believe you're good, but are you really good for me? Do you really love me? Are you really out for my good? What's God's response to this, to unbelief? We don't see any. None's given in the text. How, does, how can God deal with unbelief? Unbelief look at all he's already given to Hezekiah to prove his love and his care for him. The only way Hezekiah can get past the unbelief is to turn back to God and look at what he's already done. And the same is true for you and me, brothers and sisters. When we struggle with God's goodness, when we begin to feel like, does God really love me? Is he really for me? He wants us to look at the cross. Because the cross is his proof forever and ever, no matter what's happening in your life, that God is for you, that he loves you, that he gave up his life for you. If he would send his son to die on the cross to suffer the punishment that you and I deserved, then his love is eternal. And we're told he did that so that in the ages to come, he could pour out his grace on us in kindness through the Lord Jesus. And so if you ever doubt God's goodness, look at the cross. Do you struggle with knowing that God really loves you? Yeah, he may love other people, but does he love you? If you struggle with that, the answer is always to look at the cross. So we see in Hezekiah this progression from self-entitlement to self-pity to now a place of unbelief. And then finally, the final flaw we will look at is just the complete self-centeredness. A self-centeredness. In chapter 39, in verses 1 through 4, it says this, At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from, from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing in any storehouses that I did not show to them. So, These envoys come from Babylon. Now Babylon at this point is just a growing nation, but Assyria is the big power in town. I mean, they're the big guys. But Babylon's growing, and they are the ones who will take Judah into exile in about a hundred years from this point. But Hezekiah is so enamored with their flattery towards him that they came that he shows them everything. He shows off everything he has in his place. He wants to show how impressive he is. He's flattered by the attention. But God's not so impressed. Notice Isaiah's response in verses 5 through 7. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, and that which your fathers have stored up till this day, shall be carried to Babylon, Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of God to Hezekiah is, you fool. (laughs) You are feeding your own pride, but you need to understand what's coming. He says, this Babylon that you've just curried favor with and showed everything, they're going to come and they're going to take everything. They are going to destroy this nation. They are going to take the nation into exile. And your own descendants, your own sons and grandsons will be taken away and be castrated by the Babylonians. That's what he's saying. They'll be made eunuchs to serve the king of Babylon, which means the very potential end of Hezekiah's own family line. So think about what terrible news this is. You've just saved your country through this wonderful defeat of Assyria, Hezekiah, through seeking me, but your country will be destroyed and your own family will be at risk and they'll be taken into exile. They'll be taken away. It'll be awful. But listen to how Hezekiah responds. Verse 8 of chapter 39. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you've spoken is good. What? For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. I don't know about you, but I read that and I go, that is appalling. That's a terrible attitude because what he's saying is, All I care is about me. I am so self-centered now that all I care is that, gee, my next 15 years are going to be at peace. So I don't care about my family. I don't care about this nation. I don't care about the treasury that's going to be taken away. This is good. To me, this is shocking. This self-centeredness of a godly man from the king who turned to God in prayer to defeat the Assyrians. How did Hezekiah get here? Well, once you give in to self, there's a progression. It takes you down from self-entitlement to self-pity to unbelief to now where his whole life is wrapped up in, it's just about me taking care of myself. Let me tell you, many leaders end up there, don't they? Many leaders end up there because they've given in to self. They struggle with self. Rod Dreher who is a New York Times columnist, writer, investigative writer, investigated his own denomination for some horrible corruption. He was so disappointed that he completely left that denomination. He couldn't take it anymore because of the corruption he saw in the leadership of that denomination. He left and went to a completely different denomination. But as he thought about it, he learned some things. And his words, I think, are very apropos. Where he wrote this God speaks to us through religion and religious leaders, but they are not the voice of God. It's a paradox, but one necessary to master if you're going to hold on to your faith in spite of the failures of religious leaders. If your faith cannot survive learning that a pastor, a rabbi, or other religious authority is corrupt, then your faith is not strong enough. They are only human beings, even the greatest among them is flawed. Just as you are. Be grateful for holiness when you find it among churchmen, but do not expect it. As Flannery O'Connor wrote, all human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us and the change is painful. Priests or pastors resist it as well as others. So, to combat the temptation to idealize the clergy, practice thinking of them not as saints. But as fellow sinners. I would suggest to you that these four flaws we've looked at today, every leader struggles with. Why? Because every human struggles with them. We all do. Leaders are just fellow flawed pilgrims on the path. They, yes, they have a particular giftedness and a particular calling from God but you must not trust them instead of God. Isaiah 38 and 39 reminds us that even maybe the greatest king that Judah ever had was also deeply, deeply flawed. So we need a humble attitude, and we need each other to remind us that we're all pilgrims on this path, and we need to help each other on this way. And a a final encouragement to you, my title why you can't trust your leaders is a bit tongue in cheek. I mean I I do hope you can trust your leaders here at Cole and elsewhere, at least to be people of integrity who are honest about their struggles, who who are walking the path and seeking to grow and deal with self rather than give into self. But if your faith in Christ or your commitment to his church is dependent upon your church leaders doing it all right then your faith is on shaky ground support your leaders follow your leaders pray for your leaders but don't put your hope in them if your faith is in me or anyone else your faith is in the wrong thing because your hope is meant to be only in Jesus Christ only he loved you enough to die for you on the cross only he gave his life for you, and no one else has done that, have they? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity of this passage, for revealing to us more about Hezekiah, so we would be reminded that every human being is flawed. Every leader is flawed. No matter how mightily you might use them, Lord, they still struggle with self. So may we wean ourselves of putting our trust, our faith ultimately in them so that we might trust you more fully. We pray in Jesus' powerful, precious, mighty name. Amen.